You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we're here tonight because we want to be. We're here to worship. We're here to study. We're here to learn. But we don't want to just be a hearer of the Word. We want to be a doer of the Word as well. For you told us, whoever hears these sayings of yours and does them, they're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of yours and does not do them, they're like a foolish man that builds his house on the sand. Lord, let us be wise men and women tonight and hear and do what we are going to look at now. Speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might be surprised to know that I, Greg Laurie, am a Jersey boy. It's true. It's true. You think of me as a Southern California guy. And uh, the one Southern Californian out there, yes. And I was born in Southern California, but I lived uh, back in the uh, very early 60s in Summit, New Jersey. And that was sort of part of my adventure. My adventure of having a mom that was a dead ringer for Marilyn Monroe, a woman named Charlene McDaniel, who was gorgeous. And men beat a quick path to her door. So she was married and divorced seven times. So I traveled the country with my mom. As she married this guy, divorced him, married that guy, divorced him, and on and on it went. My mom was also an alcoholic. And uh, it was kind of a rough upbringing. I spent a lot of time on my own, a lot of nights alone. I was raised for a time by my grandparents, and I lived with an aunt here. I went to military school there. And my mom seemed to always be attracted to these, these, kind of, these guys that wore too much cologne, and just had too many of their buttons undone on their shirt, you know? There's just a point where that's too many button that button now, you know? And, and they always drove sports cars and talked big, you know? And, and I didn't like any of these guys because none of them ever treated me like a father. Well, my mom met this one guy named Oscar Laurie. In fact, that's where I got my name, Oscar. No, my last name, Laurie. And Oscar was different from all the other men that my mom married. He didn't unbutton his shirt too many buttons. In fact, he was more buttoned up. He was very East Coast, very almost, um, very proper, very intelligent, very moral. And yet he was an attorney. Uh, That was a joke. (laughs) That was a joke. But uh, not that he was an attorney. He was an attorney, but he was a good man. And he adopted me and gave me his last name and treated me like a son ought to treat a father. Well, one day I'm getting out of school in New Jersey, happy with my new home, happy actually having a man I can call dad, even though he's not my biological father, and the Cadillac that we had was loaded up with luggage, and I said, where are we going? My mom said, we're we're leaving. I said, where to? She said, we're going to Hawaii. 
I said, yeah, Hawaii, great. Where's dad? He's not coming. So we got on a plane and I landed and here's a new guy, kind of like the other guys my mom used to hang around with. Uh, over six feet tall, like six four, greasy, dark hair, too much cologne, and an alcoholic. And she just left Oscar one day, got tired of him. He was just like a stick in the mud to her. My mom liked to party. She liked to drink. She liked to have fun. And so I moved in with this guy, Al. My mom and I did. She married him. And they, they, the weird thing was they replicated my room in New Jersey that I had, excuse me, in Hawaii that I had in New Jersey. They actually went to the effort to get some of the same toys and the same things on the wall so it would feel like nothing had really changed. But everything had changed. And something in me snapped at that point and I was getting tired of being tossed around and drug around and I decided maybe it was time to exploit the situation a little bit for my own benefit. I'm only like nine years old at this point but still I think I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I can with this because obviously I'm never going to have a stable home. Well, th this guy owned a bar in Waikiki Beach. It was right there on the beach and every night he and my mom would drink and the fighting would escalate. He was a violent man. He would hit her and it wasn't uncommon for them to have fights and my mom to wake up with a black eye or a swollen lip. Well, one night they were screaming and fighting after they'd been drinking. There was a huge stud and I came out into the front room to see my mom lying on the floor her platinum blonde hair in a pool of blood. And this man was standing over her with a wooden statue with blood on it. He had obviously just hit her with it. And he said to me, go back to bed, Greg. It's just ketchup. Well, I climbed out the window of my bedroom and ran over to a neighbor's house and an ambulance came. And fortunately, my mom survived that. We moved back to California. And now I'm getting into elementary school, junior high school, having a lot of trouble with authority figures. Pretty soon, I myself, I'm getting into the party lifestyle. I'm starting to drink. I'm starting to smoke. I'm starting to do all the things that my mom did. And I thought, I can't believe this. I'm becoming my mom. And the one thing I said I would never do is become her, and I was becoming her. And just around that time, the whole 60s thing was gaining momentum, and the drug culture was coming along, and the statement of the day was, you know, a turn on, tune in, drop out. Take drugs, man. They'll make you more aware. So I tried marijuana for the first time. Now I'd watched a film in class called Reefer Madness. <laughs> and this film warned if you ever smoked marijuana you would become a raving lunatic. Well I tried it and I didn't become a raving lunatic and so I thought, ah you see they lied to us but you see the effects of smoking marijuana were worse than the film said because it was a slow burn effect. And I began to see my creative juices disappearing and I began to become lethargic and apathetic. And I thought, well, maybe I need to go to another level. And I tried LSD and I did that a few times. And at one point even had a bad trip and kind of flipped out, quite frankly. I knew there had to be more to life than what I was living. I just didn't know what it was. I hadn't been raised in the church. I hadn't been told about Jesus Christ. I'd seen all of his movies. <laughs> what was that? that was the extent of it. So for me it was process of elimination. Okay, where is the answer of life? What is the meaning of life? Well, it's not in the affluent, materialistic, hedonistic lifestyle of my mom. It's not in drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Where is it? Well, on our high school campus we had a very outspoken group of Christians who were unashamed to speak openly about their faith in Jesus Christ. 
They bring their Bibles to school and talk about Jesus. And, and I thought they were all collectively nuts. The weirdest people I'd ever met. But yet there was something that intrigued me about them and it was their authenticity. Let me tell you something. I thought I was too cool for school, okay? I, I thought I was as cool as cool could be. So if some Christian tried to relate to me by merely being cool, it would have never worked. Actually, I thought they were the lamest people I'd ever met. And that's why I liked them. Because they didn't care about stuff like that so much. In fact, it seemed like all they cared about was knowing God. And I thought, maybe they have something that's real. And so on my high school campus one day, I was walking along and they were meeting on the front lawn singing songs about God. No one invited me to their meeting like we're asking you to invite people to the Harvest Crusade. But I just was intrigued. I thought, I'm going to sit down here and watch them and figure out why they bug me and why this is all a sham. So I sat down close enough to hear what was being said, but not so close where others would think I was part of the group because that's social suicide for sure. (laughs) And as I watched them sing their songs about God, I thought, you know, they do look pretty happy. And then I tried a new thought on for size which was this, what if the Christians are right? What if Jesus Christ can be known? Well, even if that were true, and of course it isn't, but even if it were, God could never change someone like me. I'm too cynical, I'm too hard, I'm too mad at the world. I'm not the religious type. It wouldn't work for me. But then a guy got up and started to speak. He was a youth pastor from Calvary Chapel. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. And I don't remember most of what he said, but I remember one statement when he said, Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. And I looked around at the Christians and I thought, well, they're definitely for him. (laughs) But I'm not one of them. Does that mean that I am against them? The last thing I wanted to be was against God. And so he said, if you want to accept Christ, I want you to get up right now out of your seat and walk forward and accept Christ. I thought, this is crazy. I can't do this. There's no way. I kind of hung my head. My hair was hanging over my eyes. Use your imagination, if you will. <laughs> if you're listening to an audio version of this later, I'm bald. Okay, that's why they laugh. <laughs> Note to listener. But next thing I know, I'm up there, I'm praying this prayer. Now, as I'm praying this prayer to accept Christ in my life, one person on the left of me is weeping with sorrow. The person on the other side of me is laughing with joy, and I'm feeling absolutely nothing. And I'm thinking to myself, it figures it didn't work for me. (laughs) God looked at me and said, he's not worth the effort. But then what I discovered later was Christ had come into my life and it wasn't about my emotions in the moment. It was about the fact of what the Bible says and my life started to change, you see. Okay, well, I'll just fast forward real quickly and then I want to get to this message. But you see, my dad, Oscar Laurie, I was separated from all those years from him. Well, I I wanted to see him again. And after I'd become a Christian and had started a church in Riverside, California, and uh, the Lord had been blessing our ministry, I was invited to go preach in Central Park in New York City. So I wondered if he was even still around. So there was a girl in our church who worked for the Bar Association. And I said, would you find out if Oscar Laurie is still practicing law somewhere on the East Coast? She found him immediately. I got his phone number. I called his office and... His secretary answered, yes, Oscar Laurie, and so forth. And I said, yeah, I would like to speak with Mr. Laurie, please. She said, well, he's not here. He's out to lunch. Can I get your name? I said, it's Greg Laurie. She said, how do you spell your last name? I said, L-A-U-R-I-E, the same way he spells his. It's his son. 
There was like a moment of silence, like, uh uh-oh, you know. And Oscar called me back and said, Greg, I want to see you. I miss you. And so I got on the train. He was now in Red Bank, New Jersey. I took the train from uh, the city out to Red Bank. He was there waiting for me. Oh, sure, he's older, but he still looks so like he did before. Before I knew it, I was calling him dad. We were catching up. Well, one thing I left out is he had had a heart attack not long before this and had blacked out at the wheel of his car and had almost died. And... Uh, so I told him about what Christ had done for me. In fact, one night we're sitting at uh, the table. He had remarried a wonderful lady named Barbara, and she cooked this killer Italian meal. And we're just sitting there, you know, enjoying, just talking together. And she says, Greg, tell me how you came to believe in Jesus Christ. I told my whole story. And as I'm talking, Oscar is sitting at the other end of the table, just kind of with his hands up to his face like this, just watching me. I felt like I'm in a court of law presenting evidence, you know. <laughs> And I also felt like the judge isn't buying it either. Because he's so intelligent. He's such an academic. And, and I'm fumbling along to my story thinking, he'll never accept this. Well, he said, Greg, I have to walk the next morning. Will you walk with me? He had to walk every morning for his heart, you know. And so he knocks on my door. It's uh, 6 o'clock New Jersey time, 3 o'clock California time. So, oh, I'm tired, you know. We're go out into the cold New Jersey air. We're walking along. And, and he said, Greg, I was really listening carefully to what you said last night. And I said, yeah, Dad. And he said, I want to accept Jesus Christ right now. Boy, that'll wake you up. That's better than a double cappuccino right there, man. And I said, well, Dad, now I don't know if you understand what, what it means. Uh, let me go back over again what I said last night. I went over the whole thing of what the gospel was, what it meant to be a Christian. He says, I want to accept Jesus Christ right now. And at this point, we're walking this whole time, and at this point, we're in a park, and I said, well, Dad, all you have to do is just pray. He drops to his knees. I wasn't going to get on my knees. But now I was on my knees with my dad and we're praying in this park. And as soon as we're done praying, he says, Greg, Jesus just came into my life. He wasn't an emotional man. He's emotional. Jesus just came into my life, Greg. He says, pray for my heart. I believe God can heal my heart. I thought, why not? (laughs) He had so much faith, we prayed. After we're done praying, he says, Greg, I believe God has healed my heart. I gotta go tell my doctor right now I'm healed. I go, now, Dad, hold on. We don't know if you're healed, you know. No, I believe I'm healed. So we go over to visit his doctor, a nice Jewish gentleman. Um, we come walking in. Hey, doc, this is my son, Greg. He's a minister from Southern California. I'm thinking this poor doctor's thinking, what has Oscar gotten himself into? I just accepted Jesus, Oscar says, and my heart is healed. Now, Oscar, the doctor says, well, you know what? God had healed his heart. Amen. and saved his soul. And the Lord gave him 15 years more. Oscar became a leader in his church, an elder, worked with the Gideons distributing Bibles, served the Lord, and he's in heaven now. Well, then there was my mom. Oh, she's a tough nut to crack. But we share the same DNA, you see, and we both have rebel genes inside of us. She had rebelled against her upbringing by her parents who came from Arkansas, who raised her in the church. Charlene McDaniel ran from God to the world. And Greg Laurie, her son, ran from the world to God. 
So by the way I was raised, it got me searching at an early age, and now I've found Christ. I've had the privilege of praying with my father, my adopted father, to accept Christ. I go and tell my mom the whole story about Oscar. She says, oh, that's nice. I said, well, what do you think personally? She says, I don't want to talk about it. That's always what my mom said. I don't want to talk about it. I told you about her great beauty that she had. Well, she always would go out every night and get very, very drunk and drive. And I was with her in the car many times as a little boy and feared for my life, quite frankly. One night she was out driving by herself, uh, had a head-on collision with another car. Steering wheel almost cut her in half and, and her beautiful face was somewhat disfigured. And she never had that high wattage beauty she had before. Then, with the passing of time, you know, the chickens come home to roost and, and the health is breaking down, you know, and all that drinking, all that smoking, all that partying, and she's, her kidneys are failing. She's getting dialysis three times a week. Sad, because she was a very strong, independent woman. I would bring up, you know, her need for the Lord, and, and she, I don't want to talk about it. She never wanted to talk about it. See, because of my mom's mind, Christianity equaled misery, restriction, constraint, and no fun. And I knew the opposite was true because I'd tried everything the world had to offer and it wasn't any fun at all and I'd found this great adventure and excitement and joy in my relationship with Christ. Well, to make a long story short, my mom realized her need for the Lord and in her hospital room, Shortly before her death, I had the opportunity to pray with her and then have another conversation with her that was more in-depth a little bit later after that. And she returned to the one she had been running from or perhaps came to him for the first time for her entire life. You know, you look back in your life and you say, if I was writing this script, I would have done it a little differently. But then you realize that the word oops is not in God's vocabulary. Okay, so why do I do what I do today? Because, you see, I was a confused, aimless kid that could have ended up as another statistic of many kinds. Who knows what? But God intervened in my life, and He changed me. Now, I want to bring this message to as many people as I can. That's why we do these crusades. That's why we go and Bring the gospel to as many people as possible. And friends, that's why we need to bring the gospel to our generation. And that's why every one of us is called to do this, to be his representatives. And I would like us for the time that we have left to look at some principles from the Bible that I think will better enable us to be effective communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These principles are found in Acts chapter 2 and they're based on the first message of the church. And by that I mean this is the first message that was given by Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit had been poured out. Because the question was asked, what does this all mean when people are speaking in languages they'd never learned before and glorifying God? And Peter began to give to them the gospel and told them how to come to faith. And the Bible tells us that that day 3,000 people believed. Some people say, well, I'm not into numbers. Well, God is. The number's right there. 3,000 people believed. So what on earth did he say? To these people. Well, that's what I think we need to explore together. Eight principles that will better enable us to share our faith. So let's read a few verses together. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Peter says, People of Israel, listen. 
God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing wonderful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know, but you followed God's prearranged plan with the help of lawless Gentiles and nailed him to the cross and murdered him. However, God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Drop now to verse 36. And let it be clearly known by everyone in Israel that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah, and Peter's words convicted them deeply, and they said to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each one of you must turn from your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is unto you, to your children, even to the Gentiles, and all that have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. So forgive your pastor when he goes long. Okay, there it is. He, even Peter went long. Strongly urging all the listeners, save yourselves from this generation that has gone astray. And those who believe it, Peter said, were baptized and added to the church about 3,000 in all. Let's pray together now. Lord, help us to see how these principles apply to our lives so we might be better communicators of your gospel. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, eight takeaway principles on being a better communicator of the gospel because every one of us has been called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not all of us are great teachers like Pastor Joe or great evangelists like Billy Graham. But every one of us has been called to be a representative of Jesus Christ. Let me localize that. Go into all of your world and preach the gospel. Listen. You have a sphere of influence that is all yours. You could speak to people with a credibility and an authority that I would never have because who am I to them? But they know you. In effect, you've earned the right to speak to them because of your godly lifestyle. So you have a world you can go into to bring the gospel to. How can you more effectively reach them? Number one, here's what we learn from Simon Peter. He knew his audience or his congregation. He knew his audience or his congregation. In this particular case, Peter happened to know that in his audience were some of the very ones who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, not figuratively, but literally. <laughs> you crucify the Lord of glory. Maybe standing there was one of the soldiers that pounded a spike through his hand. Maybe there were over there was a centurion who said, truly, this was the Son of God. Maybe in the back there was Annas and Caiaphas, all who played a hand in this. You guys did this. He knew this, but also notice how he quoted freely from the Old Testament because he was speaking to Jews and they were conversant with Old Testament Scripture. But I want you to contrast that to... The Apostle Paul, when he brings the gospel to the people in Athens, they're not schooled in Scripture. They're schooled in the philosophies of, of uh, teachers like Zeno and, and, uh, and Epicurus, the Epicureans and the Stoics and so forth, and have these various beliefs and worship all these false gods. And Peter draws from the culture, even quotes some of the secular philosophers, but beats a quick path to the cross. My point is simply this. When you're speaking to someone, you need to adapt to the situation. See, a lot of times we just sort of have like a little thing that we've memorized that we say to every single person. But that's not the way to share your faith. Jesus never dealt with any two people in exactly the same way. Have you ever noticed that? His dealing with the woman at the well was different 
than his dealing with Nicodemus. And his dealing with Nicodemus was different than his dealing with Zacchaeus. My point is simply this. He adapted to the situation. Listen, the objective is to build a bridge, not to burn one. Jesus, the master communicator, had something called tact. Tact has been defined as the intuitive knowledge of saying the right thing at the right time. But many of us have about as much tact as a bull in a, t- a china shop. You know, we just come in, both gospel guns blaring, blowing everybody out of the water. Coming back to my mom for a moment, right after I became a Christian, I mean, I just blasted her. I blew her out of the water with my preaching, not realizing that was not the way to reach my mom. But you see, my point that I'm making is, is that we want to build that bridge, establish a dialogue, and one way to adapt to your situation is learn about the person you're speaking with. Check this out. Everyone's favorite subject is themselves. Now I could illustrate this if we took a group picture right now. We're going to take a big picture. Let's say the camera moved and got us all in it. And if I said you can buy the picture after the service, it'll be in the foyer, you would go back and look at that picture and guess who you would look for first? (laughs) Where's Jerry Paradise? No. Where's Pastor Joe? No. Where's Greg? No. Where's me? People love to talk about themselves. So a great way to talk with a person if you have the luxury of time is say, tell me a little about yourself. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I'll just listen. I won't comment. Even if I disagree, I'll just, oh, interesting. Okay. And what about this? And after I've gotten to know them a little bit, now I can appropriately take the message of the gospel and apply it to the situation, knowing your audience, if you will, adapting. Paul says, I become all things to all men. Listen to the complete statement. 1 Corinthians 9, I become a servant of everyone so I can bring them to Christ. When I'm with the Jews, I become one of them so I can bring them to Christ. When I'm with the Gentiles, I... Uh, that do not have the Jewish law. Listen, I fit in with them as much as I can. And this way I gain their confidence and bring them to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone so I can bring them to Christ. Now, notice Paul says, I fit in with them as much as I can. (laughs) As much as you can. You do have to draw a line at a certain point. Some would say, you know, I want to relate to these friends of mine so I'm just going to do whatever they do. You know, so I'll go out after work and have a few brewskis with the boys and get a little drunk and cuss up a storm with the best of them and just show them that I can be a regular guy like the rest of them. Yeah, that's how I'm going to reach my friends. You're not going to reach your friends that way. Why would they want to become like you if you're becoming like them? No, you don't compromise your values as a believer. You don't lower your standard in order to extend your reach. You fit in with them as much as you can. But at a certain point you draw the line and say, I'm sorry, I can't really do that. I'm a believer in Jesus. They'll mock you. They'll laugh at you. They'll put you down. And they'll respect you. And when crisis hits, guess who they're going to call first? Not their fellow drunken friends. They're going to call you the Christian. They're going to say, hey, uh, dude, listen. Next time you know you're talking to the good Lord, uh, put in a word for me, okay? Why are they doing that? You earn their respect by not compromising, by holding your course and standing your ground. You fit in as much as you can, so we want to adapt to the situation, but we want to be careful. Which brings me to uh, uh, 
another point, which, well, number, point number one was you adapt to your situation, you know your audience, you adapt to your situation, is number two. Number three, Peter's message was great and effective because it was scriptural. See, we don't want to miss this. He quotes from Joel 2, 28 to 32, apparently from memory. In verse 25 of Acts 2, he says, David said, then he quotes Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Obviously, Peter had committed great portions of Scripture to memory. And listen, any Christian worth their salt should be able to stand up at a moment's notice and be able to clearly articulate the gospel message. And we're going to train you how to do that, by the way, in the classes we'll be doing coming up. You should be able, in three minutes or less, to give me the gospel if I don't trip over this monitor here. <laughs> I should be able to just say, excuse me, sir, come on up here right now, and I'm going to ask this young lady over here, and I'm going to ask this man with the bad hair piece. No, I'm, there's no man with the bad <laughs> Everyone, where? No. Made it up. But um, I'm going to ask you to come up here and just give me your, your, the gospel in three minutes or less. You should be able to do that, you see. But Peter knew the Word of God. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is when you're sharing the gospel to use Scripture. Check this out. You don't have to quote it in a weird way. Have you ever noticed how some people quote the Bible? They would be talking, you know, well, well, you know, you need Jesus Christ right now because the Bible says the wages of sin are death. And the Bible says, oh, why did you just start yelling like that? Did you know you actually could have said that same thing conversationally? You didn't have to open your Bible and pound on it like the preacher does. You could just share with them what the Bible says. But use the Word of God. Why? Because God says, My Word will not return void, but it will prosper in the place where I send it. See, Greg's Word will return void. Joe's Word will return void your word will return void. God's word never will. So use the word of God as you're sharing the gospel with people that do not know the Lord. You might say, now wait a second. What if the person I'm speaking to doesn't believe in the word of God? Use it anyway. That'd be like going into battle with someone and you've got your sword and he has his and, and as you pull your sword out he says, hey listen man, I do not believe like that sword that you have is real. Really? Check this out. <laughs> They'll know it's real. So someone might say, well, I don't believe in the Word of God and I don't accept the Bible. Really, that's interesting. You know what the Bible says? I'll just keep quoting it and I'll keep bringing it up because I know that there is power in the Word of God and it will not return void. And that's why the devil does everything he can to keep us from the Word. Because he knows it's the only offensive weapon in our arsenal. Have you ever noticed in the armor of God at every basic piece of armor is primarily defensive? The helmet of salvation protects your head. Breastplate of righteousness protects your chest. Feet shot of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your boots with studs on the bottom as you move about. But you don't go against your opponent and attack him with your breastplate, you know. Or try to knock him down with your helmet? No, you pull out your sword. That's your offensive weapon. And many of us never unsheath our sword. And the devil is just happy as can be about that. That's why we want to be knowing the Word of God and using the Word of God. And I ask you tonight, what shape is your spiritual sword in? 
Is it polished from daily use as you study the Scripture on a regular basis and are sharpened on the anvil of experience as you've applied and obeyed its truth in your own life? Or is it rusty from lack of preparation or dulled by disobedience? It's been said a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a life that isn't. And so if you've got a beat up thrashed Bible, that's a good sign to me. You know, sometimes people are so careful with their Bible. Oh, don't, don't set anything on top of the Bible and be careful when you open it. I like to see a used Bible. I like to see a Bible that's all marked up. I like to see a Bible with frayed pages. Not because you, you've, you know, used it to beat people, but because <laughs> you've been reading it and you're going through it. And, and I know you guys love the Word of God here. It's almost ridiculous for me to even make this point. But this is one of the key ingredients of Peter's success is he quoted the Word of God. Number four, his message was effective because it was Christ-centered. It was Christ-centered. Verse 22 he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 32, this man speaking of our Lord. Verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be Lord in Christ. Peter spoke of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and that can't be emphasized enough. You know, we can start with our personal story. And you know, I started with my testimony because it builds a bridge to a person I'm speaking to. And, and it's a great way to start a conversation. Tell your own story. Don't just start preaching. Tell your story. Here's the cool thing about a testimony is you can kind of sneak up on a person a little bit. See, if I just say, listen, you're a sinner. You need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. Boom, the, the shields go up. The guards go up. But don't preach to me. Stop it. But if I just come and say, let me tell you about my own life. Here, here's where I used to be. And kind of tell my story as I just did a few moments ago. Here's what I thought then. Here's what happened. Then I thought this. Then this happened. Then Christ came into my life. And you know that guy that was speaking? He said, Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. So as I'm telling you, the non-believer, about what happened to me and how I heard preaching, I'm in effect preaching to you without getting in your face. Now that's my little bridge that I'm building to then say, so now let me ask you, what do you think about all that? See, the only reason to use my story is to build a bridge to his story. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about his life and his death and his resurrection. And any gospel presentation worth its salt needs to center on the death of Jesus on the cross. That's why Paul said, I don't want to know anything else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But sometimes in the church today we're trying to be so cool and relate so well that we're not given the goods. In our attempts to cross over, we're not bringing the cross over. We've got to preach the cross because that's where the power is. Years ago, I had the privilege of having lunch in the home of Billy Graham. That's intimidating. And his wife, Ruth, was still alive at that point. She's in heaven now. She cooked us a wonderful southern meal, fried chicken and all the fixings. And they had a little lazy Susan on their table. You know what that is? One of those little things you turn around, the food's on it. And, and Ruth was always so easy to talk to. She was like your favorite aunt. You know, she laughed a lot and had a twinkle in her eye. But oh my, did she know the Word of God and, and had such wisdom. I just loved hanging around her. And I loved being with her husband. But I was intimidated by him because he's Billy Graham. So we're sitting there and we're sort of chatting and, and, and we're talking a little bit and then Billy says to me, Greg, would you like a Coke? 
And it's just, I'd never heard Coke said that way. Just the way Billy, do you want a Coke? It's, yeah, yes, Billy, I would like one. Thank you. So I'm drinking the Coke and I'm thinking, what can I ask Billy Graham? I've got to ask him something. I mean, this is a great opportunity. My mind just blank. What do I ask Billy Graham? Finally, I think of something. I say, Billy, let me ask you this question. If you knew as a younger preacher what you know now after all these years of preaching, what would you emphasize more as a younger preacher that you find yourself emphasizing as a preacher that's done it for so long? And he looked at me with those steely blue eyes and he said, how did you get in my house? (laughs) He opens up the front door. He picks me up by the collar and the belt, throws me out and slams the door. Kind of a shock. Point number five. Um, No, that didn't happen. It should have. He was so kind to allow a pipsqueak like me to ask him a question like that. And without missing a beat, he looked at me and said, I would preach more on the cross of Christ in the blood because that's where the power is. I thought, whoa, I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to tell other people what I heard. He says, I would preach more on the cross of Christ and the blood. When's the last time you heard a message that mentioned the blood of Christ? Well, I know you hear it here, but oh my. Nowadays, you just don't hear that sort of thing. But as you tell people about Jesus, see, you see, Jesus Christ, He died on the cross and He shed His blood for you because you're separated from God. Peter's message, number five, was great because he called sin, sin. It was great because he called sin, sin. Look at verse 38. He says to the people, each one of you must turn from your sins and turn to God. God bless you. Now what is this essential message that we call the gospel? What are the elements that must be in place for the gospel to indeed be the gospel? We've all heard the expression, I have some good news and bad news, and we've all heard those doctor jokes, you know. The doctor who calls this one patient in says, I need you to come in to see me, and he comes in to see the doctor, and the doctor says, I have some good news and some bad news. Patient says, what's the good news? The doctor says, you only have three weeks to live. Patient says, that's horrible. What's the bad news? Well, I should have told you two weeks ago. I've been really. (laughs) Now here's the problem. What does the word gospel mean? It means what? That's right. But here's the problem. We offer Jesus as though we were a mere additive instead of the Savior of the world. Let me illustrate. We'll say to someone, hey, you know what? You need Jesus Christ in your life right now because you're empty inside and He'll give you peace and He'll give you joy and you'll be happier than you've ever been before. So why don't you ask Jesus in your life? And what if they say, well, I'm pretty happy right now. See, you see that uh, Porsche out there? That's mine. And I'm making a lot of money. I have three girlfriends. And, And I don't feel that empty, quite honestly. And I think life's pretty good. Oh, really? Well, okay. (laughs) See, that's the problem with your message. What you said to that guy, that wasn't the gospel. 
It was part of the gospel. It is true Christ will give you joy. It is true He'll give you peace. It is true He'll give you fulfillment. But here's a follow-up statement. Well, let me tell you this. You're a sinner. And you've broken God's commandments. I have not. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Yeah, maybe a few times. The Bible says if you've offended in one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. And your sin's like a big wall that separates you from God. And the Bible says the wages of sin are death. Oh, you say, man, if I tell them that, it'll offend them. Check this out. If you don't tell them that, you'll offend God. I was just talking with uh, Pastor Joe's doctor. Joe is his own doctor. He's a clinical psychologist. And um, he goes with Joe everywhere. No, I'm kidding. As you know, Pastor Joe is having uh, some medical issues and his doctor was there to help him, a great Christian guy that goes to this church, uh, Dr. Jeff. And uh, so I was saying to the doctor, I said, now let me ask you this question. And this is serious. I said, you've had to tell people that they have inoperable cancer or that they're dying? He says, yes. I said, all right, I'm your patient. You just ran the test. You know it about me. How are you going to say it? Oh, the way he did it was beautiful. It just, just such assurance and, and his bedside manner, his approach was just right. He told me the truth. He gave me some hope. But it wasn't a false hope. And he presented that information to me. I said, boy, that's really good, man. You're a great doctor I know already. And I thought, that's how we need to present the gospel. See, when I tell a person a sinner, I don't say it with glee. You know, I think sometimes you hear people talking about these things and they almost seem happy about it. You're going to hell. Hey, yeah. <laughs> no, man, you say it with a broken heart. You say it with a tear in your eye. I don't mean literally, but maybe. But the point is, there's compassion in your voice as you tell a person, you know, you are a sinner. But I'm a sinner too. I'm not suggesting I'm better than you. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, okay? I had to see the same thing I'm saying to you right now. But the good news, here's the good news. Now, the bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is God loved you so much He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and pay the price for every sin you've ever committed. And if you'll turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you will be forgiven. But you see, Peter called sin, sin. And there's people that are afraid to do that today. The most popular preacher in America today will not use the word sin or sinner. He was interviewed by Larry King and Larry asked him why he didn't use the word sinners and he responded and I quote, I don't use it. I never thought about it but I guess I don't. But most people already know what they're doing is wrong. End quote. I disagree. I don't think most people know what they're doing is wrong. I've met plenty of people that don't think what they're doing is wrong at all. I've met people that are doing the worst things and they'll say, I'm a good person. You know? So you need to let people know they're a sinner. And that's part of delivering the gospel message. Peter called sin, sin. To declare any lesson that is a false gospel. But then I tell them about the death of Christ, the payment of Christ. God demonstrated His love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 6. 
And now we find that there was a great response to what Peter said. Which brings us to point number six. His message was effective because it was incredibly bold. It was incredibly bold. In verse 36 he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Man, he went for it. Fearless. He was not going to hold back. He was going to tell the complete truth. Number seven, his message was great because he went for a decision. I suggest one of the reasons we don't share the gospel is a fear of failure. I suggest another reason we don't share the gospel is a fear of success. What am I going to do now? What if they pray and say they want Jesus to come into my life? Now what? Now what? Now, my friend, you have yourself a brand new believer to take under your wing to help out. Oh, I don't know if I have time for that. I'm so busy and so much going on. You know, and let me tell you something. That's what it means to be a disciple. The Great Commission is not just giving the essential gospel message, though it includes that. The Great Commission given to us by our Lord is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But then another part of the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that He has commanded us. So the Great Commission is to, to the best of my ability, led by the Holy Spirit, to tell you about Jesus, try to lead you to Christ, and if you come to faith, to take you under my wing, get you on your feet spiritually, and go out and do it again. Here's why this is important. Not only will you see a soul saved from death, but you can see yourself saved from spiritual stagnation. Do you know there can come a point where You've taken in so much truth. You just need to do something with it. You actually don't need to go to more Bible studies. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting you should ever stop going to Bible studies. But I'm just saying don't go to Bible studies and listen, listen, listen and not do anything about it. Think of Thanksgiving. What do we all collectively do in America on Thanksgiving? We overeat. And what do we all do around 2 o'clock on Thanksgiving? We're asleep, you know. And I think you can be fed and you can be fed and you can be fed in a wonderful church like this. And the key is you've got to do something with it. Because if you only take it and you don't give out, you can actually stagnate. You have a choice before you tonight. Evangelize or fossilize. So share your faith and try to get a new believer in your life. I have a granddaughter now. Oh, and I've got to tell you, being a grandparent is so much fun. Oh, how many are grandparents out there? I oh, see, you know what I'm talking about. We're all nuts about our grandkids. Being a grandparent, it's, it's the reward for having to, having to be a parent. It's the reward. And it's the punishment on your children for all they did to you. You know it is. But my little granddaughter, she's named Stella, She's named after my grandmother who I lived with for some time I mentioned earlier. And a little Stella, she's just so much fun to be with. We took her to Disneyland the other day. And you know, you just don't want to go to Disneyland without a kid. It's no fun to go to Disneyland with adults. Because adults just whine. Or Disney World. You know, adults whine. Oh, the lines are so long. It's so hard. It costs too much money. You know, because what do you do when you're an adult? You go to Disneyland. Where, where do we eat? <laughs> right? 
When you're an adult, you go to Disneyland, it's, after you've eaten, it's like, where do you take a nap? Is there like Napland here? Adventureland, Tomorrowland, Napland. <laughs> now take a kid and it'll change the whole experience. Because that little child has seen it in another way and then you rediscover it through a child's eyes. Take a new convert under your wing. Watch him discover the truths of God for the first time and it will revive you. See, but a lot of times, oh no, we went, no, I don't want to be around those people and I only want to be around my little group of Christian friends that I've known for 20 years and we do everything together and we go everywhere. No, no, no. Broaden your horizons and bring someone around that will, can be helped by you and that you can help as well. You see, Peter preached for a decision. 95% of all Christians have never led another person to the Lord. You know why that is, I think? I think because we've just not thrown the net. We chicken out at the last minute. We deliver the goods. We tell them about Jesus. We give them the gospel. We bring them right to the brink. And we say, well, just think about that. How about this? Next time you have that opportunity and that door opens and you have that conversation, just go for it and say, let me ask you a question. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ right now? What if they say no? Then they say no. So what? Won't kill you. No. All right. I'm going to be praying for you though. If you ever want to talk to me about it, here's my number. Call me or whatever. But what if they say yes? Yes, then you have a privilege and an opportunity. One of the greatest joys I know of, next to being a Christian myself, which is to lead someone to the Lord. And I believe God can and will use you to do that. And I challenge you to even begin to pray about people the Lord might lead you to speak to. One final point and we'll close. Number eight, Peter's message was great because he preached repentance. That's a word we don't hear that often these days. But repentance is part of believing. Believing is taking hold of something. Repentance is letting go of something. And I think there's a lot of people out there who think they are Christians but aren't because they've never repented. The Bible says repent and be converted. Let me explain. They say, well, I believe in Jesus. I accept the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on a cross and rose again from the dead. I'm totally into that. I totally embrace Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I'm gonna go and get drunk this weekend and I'm living with my girlfriend. And these are not autobiographical statements, by the way. But I'm telling you, we see this kind of thing. People running around saying, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And they're living a lifestyle that contradicts what the Bible says. What's up? They've never repented. Here's what concerns me. Some of these people say, hey, I walked down the aisle. I prayed the prayer with the guy on TV. I did thus and so. I'm good. No, actually, did you repent of your sin? Well, what do you mean by that? Did you say, God, forgive me of my sin and turn from what you knew was wrong? You need to do that. You need to tell people that too because that's part of the gospel as well. Well, let me close by saying this. We've been talking about how to tell others about Jesus. Let me just say this to some of you. You may have come here tonight and you don't know Jesus yourself. Maybe you were brought by a friend. Maybe you just kind of wandered in on your own. However you got here, as you're hearing what's being said, for the first time you're realizing I don't know if I know Jesus in a personal way. Kind of like me when I describe my 
day of coming to the Lord, I'm looking around at those Christians and I'm saying, well, they definitely know him and I'm not one of them. Could that mean I'm against him? Jesus said, you're for me or against me. You can't be neutral about Christ. This is an either or proposition. But the same Jesus that died on the cross and rose again from the dead stands right now at the door of your heart and he knocks. And he says, if you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Jesus Christ can forgive you of every sin you have ever committed. Are there things that you've done that you're ashamed of? Do you wish you could turn the clock back? And you can't. But God can forgive you. And not only will he forgive you, but he'll forget those sins that you've committed. And the Bible says, as far as as the east is from the west, is as far as God will put your sin away from you. He'll take your sin, he'll throw it into the sea of forgetfulness and post a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want a fresh start in life? Do you want to know that you'll go to heaven when you die? You say, well, yeah, I do. What do I need to do? All right, well, I've already talked about it, but let me just kind of recap it real quickly. Number one, you need to admit you're a sinner. Stop blaming your parents. If anyone could have blamed their upbringing, it could have been me. I could have blamed everything on my mom. But I had to come to grips with the fact I'm a sinner and I'm responsible for the wrong things I've done and I can't blame it on someone else. Admit you're a sinner. Quit making excuses for it. Number two, realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for you because there was no other way to connect you to a holy God you're separated from. Number three, turn from your sin. Repent of your sin. Say you're sorry for your sin. Number four, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. (coughs) Number five, do it now. Don't say, I'll do it next week. I'll do it Sunday. I'll do it in a month. I'll, I'll wait till your harvest crusade at the Wachovia Center. That's a long time from now. Don't do that. Because the Bible says now is the time, today is the day of salvation. Tonight is your night to get right with God. You have an appointment with God. I didn't see that on my calendar. Oh, it's there. (laughs) It's on a different calendar. You don't have this one. God has it. An appointment with God. Don't miss it. You can be forgiven of your sin if you'll put your faith in Christ tonight. In a moment we're going to pray and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do what I did all those years ago in the 20th century. (laughs) A day that changed my life. A day that turned the course of my eternal destiny as my eternal address was changed from a place called hell to a place called heaven because I accepted the gift of God. And you can receive that gift as well. And we're going to pray and I'll give you an opportunity to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. Let's all bow our head right now if you would. Everybody praying, please. And Father, I pray now for any person that has joined us here tonight who may not yet know you. Would you help them to see, Lord, that these words we have shared are true. They're your truth. They're gospel truth. Help them, Lord, to come to you now and be forgiven of all of their sins. When our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're praying, how many of you would say tonight, Greg, pray for me. I want Jesus Christ to come into my life. I want him to forgive me of my sin. I want to know that when I die, I will go to heaven. I want my guilt taken away. Pray for me right now. 
If you want Jesus Christ to come into your life, if you want Him to forgive you of your sin, if you want to go to heaven when you die, would you lift your hand up wherever you're sitting and I'll pray for you. God bless you over here on the side, here in the middle, up toward the front, in the back, God bless you, or on the other side, God bless you, on the very side there, God bless you, sir. Anybody else, you want God's forgiveness tonight, lift your hand up, I'll pray for you. You want Christ to come into your life. God bless you, young lady there, yes. God bless each one of you. Anybody else? This is your opportunity now. God bless you in the back, there in the middle, over here on the side, the corner, yes. Maybe you've fallen away from the Lord. You're a prodigal son or daughter. You were raised in the church, but you've been running from God. You're a little bit like my mom was. But you want to come back to the Lord tonight. If you want to return to Him this evening, would you lift your hand up and let me pray for you now. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless each one of you. God bless. God bless all of you. God bless you, yes. Lord, thank you for each one of these. We know you love them with an everlasting love. Now with loving kindness, we pray you'll draw them to yourself. Help them to come to you now and receive the forgiveness that you alone offer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, everyone that Jesus calls, he calls openly and publicly. And in a moment, the worship group is going to do a song of invitation. And I'm going to ask that when they start to sing the song, that if you raise your hand with me during that last moment of prayer, that you would get up out of your seat, step into the aisle, and walk down here to the front. And when you get here, I'll lead you in a prayer. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Greg Laurie. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Greg's teaching ministry by visiting harvest.org.